Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the evening service. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Hi, well, uh, good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you all. Yeah, we're going to do that. Actually, we're just going to be one more thing before we do that. We sometimes in our evening services have a little bit of time for chat uh, and just a little bit of kind of, you know, just... uh, Get comfortable on your seat. You can get up and have a little bit of a pace around or whatever. Uh, we're going to do that right now. Um, but I'd like you to talk about something in particular. Well, you don't have to, but here's an option. You know how there are two really embarrassing things to talk about for British people? Religion and money. Okay? I want you to talk about both of them at the same time. Okay? So this is the question I'd like you to explore with one another. Do you have any great memories of when money and church came together, either in a really good way or in a really terrible way. Okay, any, any memories of where you've kind of seen money and religion come together well or badly? You don't have to talk about, you may feel that's kind of off the, off the dial, kind of in a kind of social, social kind of way. You can just ask one another, what's your name? How was your day? What do you think of the weather? That kind of stuff is absolutely fine too. If you want to get something to drink, there's a few more things left there. If you want to just have a quick wander, I've got three or four minutes uh, on that. And then I'm going to speak about exactly that subject. So it should be brilliant. Okay, off we go. Okay. Right. Well, uh, you're welcome to continue those discussions later on. Andy over here has just told me that one of my predecessors had a rule that he would only speak about money once in the year. So it looks like I may be about to shoot my bullet for 12 months, but I may have a different rule. So there we go. Now, why did I get you to speak about that? Well, um, we are continuing our series in Acts. And I don't know about you, but the first couple of chapters of Acts are just unbelievably exciting, aren't they? You've got this moment where Jesus, he he, he rises, he ascends, he says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, and you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. Then there's Pentecost, and there's tongues of fire, and people understand, you know, languages that they never knew before. The gospel is just blazing out. You know, there's throwaway lines like, and 3,000 people were added to their number that day. It's just incredibly exciting. And then you get to chapter 5. And two things come in. Uh, The first one is money. And very shortly afterwards, a serious handbrake on the progress of the early church. And we're about to have a look at that passage. It's an extraordinary moment. The early church has been shooting forward. And now something happens that shakes them to the core. And then, just as now, they start to ask all sorts of questions because of this event that really focuses what it means to be on board with this great move of God's Spirit. So, I'm going to ask Carol to come up and join us, and she is going to uh, read 
uh, from the end of uh, chapter 4 through to uh, the beginning, a little way through chapter 5. Thanks, John. Yes, Acts 4, starting at verse 32. The believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Sorry. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he had owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife um, Sophia, also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this a price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just pray. Lord, we pray that you would teach us from the scriptures this evening. We pray that you teach us something new and something deeper about yourself and who you are. And something new and something deeper about who we should be in response. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last verse of that passage. I guess we're all there. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Quite right. I wonder what you think it's like 
to encounter the Holy Spirit. Well, we've seen many things in the first few chapters of Acts, but I wonder whether you ever thought it would be like this. Is this what it's like to encounter the Spirit of God? We can't blame the first disciples, can we, for being frightened? There are so many questions that we want to ask about this passage. Um, We're going to come to them in just a moment, but let's not jump ahead too quickly. The second half of this passage, the incident with Ananias and Sapphira, is kind of almost unbelievably bad. But I wonder whether you notice that before that, the bit before is almost unbelievably good. And we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that, which frames the second half to see what's going on. Because in the first half, we see the Holy Spirit doing something really quite extraordinary. We see its job, his job, as a uniting spirit, a uniting spirit. Verse 32. Um, If you've got a Bible, by the way, they're they're, um, in front of you in the pew. This is on page 1106. You could dial this up on your phone as well. Acts chapter 4. You'll find it helpful to follow along because um, we're going to get through the detail of this story. And I think it's it's worth tracking along. So Acts chapter 4 verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money for the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, practically speaking, we can get our heads around what was going on here. Money and resources were being pulled and shared But of course, it is an extraordinary thing to happen in any human community. As the writer says, God's grace was powerfully at work. By the Spirit, people were moved to extraordinary generosity and unity. And the two things come together. So what does the Spirit do? He unites believers. He unites them in their thinking. Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. If we experience a sense of disunity, we've got to pray to the Lord, the Spirit, to unite us. And secondly, he unites them practically. So we're told there, uh, second half of verse 32, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. So their needs became one. They shared their needs and they helped one another to the extent we're told that there were no needy people among them. So what I thought we'd do is we would, Get um, a bin bag, and I'm just going to come around. And if you've got anything sort of valuable in your pockets, like a phone or, you know, some jewellery, if you just put it in the bin bag, and then we'll, we'll just take them all in. And then at the end, I'll take it out of the pawn shop. We'll, we'll sell it, and don't worry, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But that's kind of what they were suggesting, isn't it? And I joke slightly at my own expense here, because when we imagined, they were like, that's scary. I'm not sure I want to be in a church. So what are we to make of these verses? Well, they are certainly challenging. The Spirit can unite believers in such a way that their needs become genuinely common. That they bind together in community and support in a way that us individualist Westerners can scarcely even imagine. So what would it look like for us at Emmanuel Croydon to learn from this early church? Should we be exactly like this? Uh, Could we be something like this? 
Is that even realistic or possible to think about? I hesitate to answer any of those questions because I've been reading this all week. And um, I know that I struggle to let go of a couple of couple of 10 pounds here, 10 pounds there, let alone selling a house or a piece of land that I own, like these guys do. I'm in no place to speak on this subject of giving and generosity in so many ways. But still, I think that there is there's something here for all of us. Wherever we find ourselves, even if it looks quite different for ourselves, there is something already happening in this church many things. And I also think with a bit of extra imagination, there are other things that could happen amongst us that will bring us some way along the way to implementing this kind of pattern of generosity and unity in our church. Let's first of all just get totally clear what was actually happening in this church here. So uh, some scholars uh, have, have dived in and thought, oh yeah, here we go, this is the beginnings of communism. Uh, and there was, a, there was a great kind of movement of Christian communism at some stage. It's worth noticing that's not actually what happens here. So people, they do share their things. But then verse 34 tells us that from time to time, people sold their possessions and brought the money to the apostles. Now, obviously, if they had possessions to sell, by definition, right at the beginning, they kind of pull, pulled everything together. So I think what was more a case that there was a sense of shared need and everyone brought their resources as they could to help one another. The call is not necessarily to sign away all our possessions, but each of us can share what we have. So I wonder, do you have a roof over your head? Well, can you share that? Can you invite someone from the church family to come and share that through hospitality? Do you have some free time available? Can you share that? Perhaps you can give that up to serve someone in need. Perhaps you can go around with one of our pastoral team and Go and visit someone who's sick. Perhaps you can uh, set aside some time to just uh, help someone who's in particular practical need. Perhaps you're someone who earns more than you need to live. I know that won't be all of us. But if you do earn more than you need to live, perhaps um, instead of just widening your budget and you know paying a little bit more for your phone and getting a slightly kind of flashier version and just a slightly quicker car and whatever and soaking up the excess that way, um, how about thinking instead, okay, I'm going to try and keep my lifestyle basically similar. And then if, if I earn a little bit more, I'm going to use some of that to give away. Someone once said to me, once you decide you don't have to keep money for yourself, it becomes a lot more interesting what you can do with it. And it is amazing. So perhaps you could think about giving and uh, financial generosity. This is a good moment for, you to, for me to encourage you to, to give to church. So um, the early believers, they didn't have an institution that they were kind of all bought into. We do. This is kind of our common space. Uh, and uh, the stuff that goes on here costs about £550,000 a year to, to run. Um, and that comes from generous congregational giving. There's not a kind of magic golden pot somewhere that it all drips out of. That's because people are fantastically generous in this church. That's why we can run the center. That's why we can have a team of youth workers and uh, worship leader, production and digital media coordinator. We can, we can have a three-man ops team, which is what it takes to keep this thing going. Um, that's how we heat the bu- building. Sorry, the ops team are not who heat the building. We, we, we pay money for the, for the gas to heat the building. Um, financial giving is just one way that we can share our resources, whether it's to the church or in other ways. 
But I guess we also need to recognize that perhaps our needs are a little bit different to the early believers. Um, From the way that persecution was happening in that day, some of the practical needs for the early believers were really acute. And this really, perhaps some of you have had experience of this. It really came home to me. I had a friend who went on a a mission trip um, to Central Africa while I was at a theological college. His wife was doing some work in a hospital. He was visiting people there. And he shared the gospel with a young Muslim man who was uh, disabled. And this chap said to him, well, look, uh, you know, I love the sound of your Jesus. That's fantastic. But if I'm going to believe in your Jesus, you're going to have to take me into your family. Because um, I'm disabled. I can't earn a living for myself. If I become a Christian, I'm going to be chucked out of my home. And so if I want to survive, someone else is going to have to look after, after me. And perhaps that's a little bit what was happening here. People were becoming believers. And really, unless the church looked after them, they were completely on their own. Now, thankfully, it's not quite the same in our culture. Um, though there are some in our country for whom it might be like that. And it's important not to forget that. The trouble is, though, that we, we because it's accepted in our culture, we can live like totally independent kind of islands of self-sufficiency, can't we? And that's kind of what we value in our culture. It's therefore quite hard for us to share our needs with one another and hard sometimes for us to give to one another. So how can we do that? Well, that's one of the great reasons for being in a small group. You know, you don't need to share all your needs with 200 or 500 people. That's exhausting and not really realistic. But a small group of people, you can. And perhaps learn how you might share and encourage and support them. Now, there's so much more we could say on this. What I would suggest you do, there are some amazing saints in this church who really know what it is to be radically generous and from whom I'm learning a great deal. Keep an eye out for them and watch them and see what you can learn. That's the uniting spirit of uh, these first few chapters. So that gets us to uh, the end of, of chapter, chapter 4. But the second section uh, that I want to look at here talks about him not so much as a uniting spirit, but a holy spirit. A holy spirit. We use that word, don't we? We call him the Holy Spirit. Holy means set apart, distinctive, different. So um, just reading from the end of chapter four, um, we're told about this guy, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, the apostles called Barnabas which means son of encouragement. That's why I named my son Barnabas. There we go. Um, you can test him whether he knows the meaning of his name next time you meet him. Uh, and he uh, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph has done this great thing. It's a, it's a big move. And I guess we're to understand that Ananias and Sapphira watched this happen. They thought, oh, I would love to you know, get that kind of credit as well. Because, you know, clearly Joseph's numbers has gone up around here. And so, see what happens. A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold, also sold a piece of property. Note the difference. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, when we approach this story, we've got to work out Quite clearly, what is it that actually happened here? Was it apparently that they got wrong? And then what's the application of all of that to us? And all of those require a little bit of thinking. So uh, follow me closely and follow the scriptures because otherwise I might be saying the wrong thing. You can check it that way. 
But let's just be clear one thing first of all. Um, in this particular uh, incident, Ananias and Sapphira, they have a pretty rapid comeuppance for, for their wrongdoing. Now, that's not normal for the picture of Scripture, right? So think of, you know, the Apostle Peter who denies Jesus. He gets a second chance. Uh, we go to the other end of the New Testament and we look at the, the churches of Revelation, Jesus' message to them. He says, look, you're not doing so well. Get back on track. You know, I, I, I forgive you. This is not normal. But there is something to learn here. There is something to learn. So what happened, first of all? What happened? Well, we're told, verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. When you first read this story, you think, basically, Ananias and Sapphira are being, are they, are they being got at for being not super, super generous? Because it means that they obviously gave quite a lot away, right? That seems a bit harsh. But let's just be clear what happened. It seems that the wording here suggests that they misappropriated the funds. So perhaps they made a vow that they, they told everyone, we're going to sell this piece of land. We're going to give all of it to the church. And then they deliberately held some back, gave the rest, and then passed it off as if they had given the whole lot. Now, obviously, many of us would love for a slightly gentler denouement. We would love for it to basically be that, you know, Peter sort of called them out and said, no, you didn't really give everything, did you? Said, oh, no, you're right, we didn't actually. Okay, well, never mind, I forgive you, Jesus would as well, and, you know, let's move on from here. But actually, it doesn't turn out that way. So what's going on? Well, let's start at the very basic level. Did this event actually happen? I'm pretty confident this event happened. This is not the kind of story that you would make up, right? Ananias and Sapphira don't feature anywhere else in the New Testament. This was clearly a pretty extraordinary moment. And when the apostles wrote the New Testament, and particularly when Luke wrote the story of Acts, it's like, that was a standout one. I think I'm going to put that in. The detail of the story suggests that it is very random after all. What were Ananias and Sapphira's mistakes? Well, look at verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? So the point is not that Ananias, you know, should have given more but gave less. But here he's lied to the Holy Spirit. He says, Matt, what's that about? What's made it? What was that about? Well, have a look further down in verse 4. Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Answer, yeah, I did. He had the land. And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Yeah, he could have done whatever he liked with it. So it was fine. He didn't have to give it. He, it was his own decision to give it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to us men, but to God. The issue seems to be that somewhere in his heart, Ananias and Sapphira too have lied to God. So this is not about a lack of generosity. It's about a lack of honesty and a lack of integrity. You've tested the spirit of the Lord, says Peter. Perhaps the idea for them was that they were trying to see what they could get away with. They want to pass off one action as something different from what it is. Well, what can we deduce 
from all of this for ourselves. Well, basically, I just want to say one thing. And that is that the Holy Spirit is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy. You know, when we invite the Holy Spirit to be in our lives, we think of the Holy Spirit perhaps as being comforting, empowering, uh, Jesus-focused, hopefully, encouraging. And he's all of those things. But he's also holy. He's refining. He's purifying. He cares about the things that God cares about, including sin. So he's concerned for the change of our hearts. He's concerned for our hearts, our integrity. He's all of those other things, certainly. But he is also holy. So if you and I are the temple of the living God, that's what we're supposed to be, then we want to take that seriously. Seriously enough to think our lives need to change if that's the case. And so when we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives, which uh, is an exciting prospect, isn't it? We, we long to have the power of God in our lives. There's also should be an appropriate awe and respect. What is the Holy Spirit going to do in my life? How is that going to change me? It means change and holiness. And of course, I say that as someone who I know it starts with me. Now, let me say again, this is not God's normal way of doing things. And thank goodness it, it, it isn't. Otherwise, uh, probably there would be quite a lot of uh, gatherings that would uh, play out slightly differently from the way that they do. But it does give us an occasion to see into the mind of God. So I wonder, let me ask you this question. Do you see the Holy Spirit as holy? Do you take God seriously? Is God a, a serious thing? Not do you take yourself seriously. We're Christians, we don't take ourselves super seriously. But we take God seriously. The Holy Spirit is a holy spirit. And that's the main thing I just want to leave with you. But as I do so, I imagine that you might find yourself in all sorts of different places. On one end of the spectrum, there may be some people who just think, oh, man, I've never heard of any of this stuff before. This is just so confusing. I've got so many questions. I'd love to speak to you afterwards if, if that's you. Um, there may be some here who have got a whole history of feeling scared of God. And actually, you read this story and you're just like, that's super terrifying as well. If I was scared before, I'm, I'm even more scared now. And now if that's you, I think in many ways, this is not the story that you need to hear. And Ananias and Sapphira's issue was that they were taking God not seriously, flippantly. They thought it was a light thing. They thought it was a thing of no consequence to just hide what they were doing and, and get some credit for it. So if, you're, if you already battle with that kind of fear, I don't think this is a story for you. You need to know that the Lord is kind. We've been singing this evening. I'm running to your arms. The Lord throws his arms out wide to us. Whatever we've done. You remember it's the story of the prodigal son? Even if we've made a complete mess of our lives, you don't have to sit there thinking, oh, I'm scared, I can't go back and speak to God. We can. We can come back into his arms. But then perhaps there's others where actually you've often thought of God as just kind and welcoming and sort of, you know, curmudgeonly and grandfatherly and, yeah, it'll be all right. But you've never thought of God as holy, as someone awesome. Uh, this illustration gets overplayed, so forgive me if I've pulled it out many times before. But the, uh, the um, Tales of Narnia, 
um, characterize um, God as, as a lion. You know, a, a, li- a friendly lion. But when you're standing next to that friendly lion, even though you know he's friendly, you're looking down at those paws, you're looking down at that huge face, you're thinking, this is, a, this is a mighty beast. This is something to have awe and respect for. And so perhaps there's a word for you this evening to just think, the Lord I love and who loves me is holy. But the last thing I want to say to you is perhaps you find yourself sort of all the way through that journey. So you know God is loving. You know he's good. You also know he's holy. And so you sense the sense of, can I, can I approach him? And I want to share with you some verses, very famous verses from, from the Old Testament. Um, these are from Isaiah 6. Isaiah was a prophet and he had visions of God. And um, in Isaiah 6, he has this vision of God who is on a throne and he's got a sort of cherubim around him. He's got all these kind of angelic beings um, around him. And even the angelic beings are so holy, they have to cover their faces. Otherwise, it's too much brightness. Uh, and uh, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he looks at this sight in his vision and he just thinks, that's it. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord. And then there's this wonderful moment in the vision. One of these seraphs um, flies down to him with a live coal in his hand. And he takes it from the altar and touches the lips of Isaiah. This is, you know, pictorial language. And he says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. All your worries, all your woe to me is gone. You're welcome to be in the presence of God. And of course, for us as Christians, we believe that's what happened at the cross. At the cross, that was the moment that God kind of took the tongs, took the coal, made us clean as the Lord Jesus took the forgiveness uh, of our sins, gave us the forgiveness of our sins. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see